Hi everyone, this is Fur Curtis coming to you at the top of the episode to let you know about an exciting collaboration for our Pride episodes. Our Pride episodes are in collaboration with and supported by Certified Proud. And if you don't know who Certified Proud are, well, I encourage you to go check out the amazing work that they do. Certified Proud is an organisation which allows the LGBTQ community to feel safe whether that's in the workspace, visiting a hotel on a holiday, or going to the gym. If Certified Proud is affiliated with a group, everyone will be welcomed with respect and fairness. Entheus holds a lot of the same values as Certified Proud, creating safe spaces for the queer community, fighting discrimination, inclusivity, and being the change we want to see in the world. We are extremely grateful for the work that Certified Proud do and we want to thank Liam, Danya and Eve, the Certified Proud team, for their support on our Pride episodes. And now, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Reimagining Ceremonies, a podcast by Entheos. I'm Karen Dempsey. And I'm Fred Curtis, and we're here to start conversations about reimagining ceremonies. We are very excited to welcome our second guest on reimagining ceremonies. So we're going to say a big hello to James O'Hagan. James, how are we? I'm very good. I'm excited to be here in this build up to Pride to talk about queer death and dying. <laughs> I know. So joyful. But I had a coffee with James last week, and actually, there's more you have so much knowledge around this topic and you Mm. said things um last week to me that I was like I didn't even consider that when it came to people thinking about death or people for want of a better term preparing for death you know but I think we'll take a little step back just for a second so I know James through podcasting but I know you through drag race podcasting through queer podcasting pop culture stuff Mm -hmm. but you have this whole other side um with your work with LGBT Ireland so I thought it'd be nice to just start with you introducing yourself in this arena I know a lot of people know you from LGBT Ireland but maybe just introducing the work you do with them and a little bit about yourself we want to hear about you (laughs) this is my my dating profile very smack the pony (laughs) I know if you're if you're not watching we have placed the camera directly in front of James but no yeah so I I I suppose I I in 2020 around the time of the marriage equality referendum was when I first kind of got like activated to, to start thinking about how my identity was making me stand out and like the ways in which I was not as fully able to kind of participate in society, which is, you know, a a great luxury. And and as like a a cisgendered white middle-class person in Ireland, I think that like many people never reach that point where they kind of understand that giving back is important. And so from that point on, I did always want to try and do something where I was highlighting the needs of more marginalized people within my community and speaking to my experience. And so as far as it could help other people. And at that point, I started a podcast with some friends talking primarily around the experiences of fat people within the queer community and kind of like what it is to, to, to be a person who's in the community sort of in a way that feels more conditional than other people's uh, place in the community. And I sort of, as I found a love for this and I, it sort of overtook any joy I had in the sort of wonderful job I had working in the College of Surgeons before that. And when an opportunity 
to move to LGBT Ireland came up to work specifically around the needs of older members of our community who are another group that are so invisible. I just, I leapt on it. And my role there was just to be related to training health and social care professionals. That was what I was in there for. I was in there, I was not going to be seeing any old queer people. I was not going to be going near any old queer people. I was going to be meeting with the sort of, pri- the, the like the core and most important health and social care professionals that uh, exist to make sure that they understood how they could make their practice. So when they were interacting with older queer people, they were able to like give an inclusive service. But then COVID happened and I sort of, found myself obviously unable to do the role I'd been hired to do because there was no way to train those people. And I sort of shunted sideways into direct support for older members of the community. And it was through doing that and through getting to know these, like through twice weekly coffee mornings, through sort of events that we would do during the evening, just social events, getting to know the stories of so many older members of my community, people who I would have seen and, you know, in my younger years, certainly been quite judgmental about their place, perhaps like fallen into the traps of some of the stereotypes and stigma that associate itself with older members of our community. And it just completely challenged me to think about life aging, the, the, the process of growing old, the sort of the joy you get out of life as you're growing old in a completely different way. And so that's become kind of like, you know, other than fatness, my like main kind of area where mm-hmm. I'm really passionate about kind of like bringing that inclusivity into the community. And I suppose through getting to work with other people in the sector, particularly the likes of the Hospice Foundation, the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care, and other kind of like hospices and nursing home settings, it it is just this area of of death and dying and the right to, to have your identity be respected in those like final sort of like really important personal moments to know that you are being respected for who you are that the people around you are the people who matters that the way you're presented is the way that you would want to be presented it just felt so important and so like something that I needed to try and do as much as I could to facilitate Um, and I went at, at that as kind of a looking at it as like a facilitator but then found that I got so much personally out of it it was amazing um, <laughs> and it's kind of it feels like it's a natural way to go in to talk about the death cafes mm. um however i do want to just take one step back and be like what drew you towards the specific work of working with older queer people like is it something that from a younger age you're always curious about or is it something i don't know as you entered your 30s you started considering <laughs> you know older queer people because when you're 30 sometimes you as a queer person sometimes yeah. you feel like oh I'm quite old even though we're not <laughs> yeah absolutely no I think that I, I I would say that like we are within the queer community and I particularly would call out the the gay male community in, in this, okay. in, this in, in what I'm saying is that we are, we have stratified and created like a sort of a pyramid of value within our community that there is a very particular sort of person that sits on top of. There is a value is attributed to youth, physical ability, sort of being able-bodied, sort of whiteness, all of these things. And the further you fall from that, the more excluded you are. And I think that what drew me to the needs of older members of the community was just looking at this disconnect between the way in which they were perceived and thought about and seen within our community. They were sort of pushed away, reviled, seen as being sort of, you know, sometimes sexually perverted. There was always an assumption of deviancy about them, sort of them coming into youthful queer spaces was seen to be sort of, you know, a a transgression. They shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be seen. But these were the people who had fought to get us to where we are. These were the people who sort of made it possible for these spaces to exist as openly as they do now. And it felt like when they moved past the point where they were 
at, they were they were I suppose where they were considered to be sort of palatable to be included, where their youth had passed by, perhaps where they were no longer kind of as physically attractive, they were no longer perhaps able-bodied, they need additional care and support, they were just pushed to the side and considered, I suppose, to be sort of an unwanted or unsightly part of our community. And I think that dawned on me over the initial period of time that I was working in LGBT Ireland and really has been the driver for why I've wanted to to platform older people, give them a space to be able to speak about their own experiences and try and challenge that mindset in lots of members of our community that it's a place that only youth is accepted, that only sort of a particular type of mm-hmm. physical presentation is accepted. And beyond that, if you're not fitting in, it's your fault and you don't deserve to have a place there. Yeah, and sitting down with an older queer person, the wisdom, the experience that you would not learn about if you didn't sit down with them. And I know through your um, podcast series, Invisible Threads, that's like even getting to hear those conversations as a listener and being like, I wouldn't. And I honestly, if I'm being honest, I went to those podcasts because of you, because I knew you. And then this wealth of experience and understanding of my community further that I wouldn't get. No, and I think that was, so the, the Invisible Threads podcast series available wherever you get your podcasts is um, eight older members of our community from different walks of life, from different ways of being came together to share their own stories. And you have stories of people who came out back in the, the 50s and 60s and have fought tooth and nail every step of the way to try and have greater levels of inclusion to people who only just came out in the last couple of years whose fight to like understand their identity has been a lifelong battle and now finally they can sort of exhale and relax it looks at the experiences of older trans people of older lesbians and it kind of really i, I suppose it, it it shows that whatever color exists within our community on pride day that also exists within the older population and it, it draws into question why are they not more visible because they are there. And if you're not seeing them, it's not that they're not there, it's that they either don't feel safe to be visible or you're ignoring them. And I think that's the question that like those conversations really brought forward to me because you're right, these were amazing people with amazing life stories who had contributed mm-hmm. so much to the world around them. And yet they were seen to be over the hill, pushed out to the fringes, not really recognized or wanted as part of our community, which, you know, is all about inclusion is all about being part of um is all about being part of kind of like a a, a collective but then doesn't necessarily do a great job sometimes in following through on that Mm -hmm. absolutely so let's talk about the queer death cafes which is something you set off set up and let's just hand that over to you. What is the Queer Death Cafes? Where did it come from? So, I mean, the, the, the sort of the, the Queer Death Cafe is sort of something that builds on a sort of a wider movement around creating non-judgmental spaces to speak about death. It's not like bereavement counselling. It's not a place to come to look for kind of support in, in, a, in a sort of a structured way. It's just a place for people who have questions or concerns or worries or anxieties or even just sort of curiosity about death can come together and sit and speak in a non-judgmental environment. It's very sort of, there's no agenda, there there sort of will be sort of maybe a, a, a guide for the conversation and maybe conversational prompts, but it very much is about people coming into a room together, strangers coming into a room together to bring whatever they're bringing into the space and to discuss it together, to be able to resolve perhaps issues that they have, to give them a space to say something they don't feel safe to say anywhere else in their lives, or just to, to address an issue that's been on their mind with people who obviously are not going to be judging them for talking about it because sadly conversations around death 
are kind of stigmatized. People feel like if you're talking about death, you're kind of going to bring it on you. That if there's mm. some sort of obsession, it's like, what's wrong with you that you want to go to this morbid place and talk about talk about this kind of subject? So it's this place to be able to know you can have those conversations in safety. Um, and then adding the sort of queer aspect into it, it allows that additional safety for, there's, there are issues that obviously queer people will face as they're going through lives, whether that's relating to older members of our community whose life has been sort of, whose like coming of age was, was at a time when their identity left them with two options and those were to pretend you were straight, get married and fit in or to leave. And the only other alternative would be live a life on the fringes where you're not safe to be yourself. You don't have the right to access the services that you need. You need to be quiet. You need to be sure that no one's going to find out about you. And so it's having those spaces now to come together to speak about both death within the context of your lived experiences is so important. Mm -hmm. I think as well, in terms of the spaces that exist at the moment to have these conversations, they tend to be so heteronormative. Yes. Um, incredibly heteronormative. And that doesn't come on the radar of the cishet people who are running them because no. they're holding their best intentions to do it in all these different ways. But it needs to be an overt, Absolutely. an overtly welcoming space for queer people and LGBTQ plus people to welcome in. Um, because as you were speaking, I was so inspired listening to every word you've said, James. I know. But I'm I, like, it's been like five minutes and I'm already like, like... Is it only five minutes? Because I've learned a lifetime. Well, I stuff. don't know, but, but um, yeah. Because my background is nursing mm -hmm. and you've brought me right back to being as a nurse um, and I, I trained back like in the 90s and back then I remember the number of times I felt such empathy and pain for queer people who showed up in the healthcare system yeah. and were ostracized by the staff who were supposed to be caring for them. I know or shamed or shunned and the kink shaming that goes on as well. And it's an ongoing hospital joke, you know, ha ha ha, these, and the utter pain of that, the exclusion of it, and how, mar how much that marginalizes vulnerable people who need healthcare. Absolutely. Oh. And also like, will, will just impact health seeking behavior. So if you are afraid that you are going to be rejected or discriminated against when you go into yeah. A, yeah. a healthcare setting, you're not going to go in. So you're potentially not going to, and there is plenty of research to back this up queer older people have worse health outcomes because they tend to delay getting treatment because they're afraid that the services they're going to engage with won't respect their identity. And, you know, the reality is that that's not based on any kind of like stick your finger in the air and see what way the wind is blowing. That's based on a, a lived experience of a world that told them you aren't important enough to matter. You are an outsider. You don't deserve to have a sort of a, a, an equal shake of the stick. I'd say your brother or your family yeah. member who sort of just by virtue of their sexual orientation or gender identity gets to just fit seamlessly into a society yeah. that's built for them. And if you have a healthcare issue, it's your fault because of the, exactly. because of choices you make. You know, Completely. Without uh, going anywhere near the bigger picture and the wider picture. And, and the same does not apply to heterosexual people attending no, healthcare. No, absolutely. And, and like when you look at, say, the, the older, older members of our community, the, the sad fact is that they are considerably more likely to rely on those sort of external services that people need for positive aging because of the circumstances in which they grew up. So they are less likely to have partners, more likely to live alone, mm. more likely to be like worse, so worse off socioeconomically. So they are people who really need to be able to trust that the social safety nets are there to, to, to catch them. But they are also, by and large, terrified that these services are going to either disrespect their, their, their identity or be a place where they're not going to truly be able to be themselves. I 
have had conversations with uh, with many older people who have had experiences where there was one particular older man who was uh, receiving treatment for for cancer, and part of that treatment involved an individual coming into his home on a weekly basis to 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 provide him with like very intimate personal care. And within the second week of that person coming into the house, they had noticed that there was rainbow flags, that there was photographs of him with an obvious same sex partner, and the the tone and way in which the 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 the, the carer started treating him was much more rough much more kind of you know accusational talking about where's your wife why is your wife not doing this and so he ceased that service he asked a friend to help him out but that meant he lost out on having the the medical expertise that that carer brought mm. into his space because he valued his safety more and to be honest with you i think i probably would have done the same mm, <laughs> but absolutely. the system is so broken that should have been flagged by somebody within that healthcare system so that the person the carer was removed from that situation absolutely and, and so the other people are kept safe from a carer like that because that is not a carer. No, it, it's not a carer. And it, you, you can't be a conditional carer. You can't be, yeah. I'm going to be be paid by the state to, to provide yes. a service, but only so long as you meet this list of criteria yeah. I've, I've picked out. Like it, it, it can't work or can't operate like that. But too often people who are on the outside, and this happens with... With, with people with uh, disability needs or mm. different ability needs and, and, and people from all different walks of life as well, people coming here who, who don't perhaps have English as a first language yeah, as well, you find yeah. yourselves outside of what's on offer and you're just told that you have to put up with it because that's the way it is. And that shouldn't be the way it is. Yeah. So is the Queer Death Cafe a kind of launching pad to look at these other issues within the health Yeah, it is. And I sector. think first and foremost, I think it's very important to say that, like as you were saying, around a lot of these spaces that may exist for, for talking about death in this way are like quite heteronormative and cisnormative. And I was very lucky in that I got linked in with uh, two people, someone working within the, the Hospice Foundation and someone working working within the, the All-Ireland Institute of Hospital and Palliative Care who really had I suppose come sort of mutually separately I should say to, to an understanding that they needed to bring a queer lens to what they were doing to reach this particular target audience and it became a priority for them to do this properly and that meant bringing a queer organization in mm. so they contacted me through the work that I was doing with the champions program which is our, our health and social well, social, social care professional training program to sort of see what way we could work together on this and so the opportunity arose in palliative care week of last year for us to be able to come together and create a space that was inclusive, that authentically included, LG, like the, the need, like looked to include the needs of LGBTQI plus people at the very front, not as something that was kind of like tacked on to an already existing mm-hmm. sort of way of doing things that sort of just like sort of let's hope this all works out. And I think that people really responded to that because we've done we've done two of these events now and we'll be doing another two as the, the end of this year comes, or, or throughout the end of this year. And the responses I can tell you from sort of being in community activism and being in various other ways that like organizing events and getting people into the room for them is absolute torture. You can, <laughs> you, 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 you rarely are able to like fill a room when you're doing something of like a Tuesday, random Tuesday evening. Yeah. But both times that we've done these events, they have completely packed out. People really want the space and people really valued that it was called out as a queer death cafe. This is a space where my identity is going to be what's respected and the conversations are going to be about what matters to me and I can bring in what I need to talk about from this perspective and know that people are going to to respect me enough, hear me, see my identity, understand who I am and why this is important to me. And I think that's why it's been sort of so successful. And it absolutely now is was it's becoming what's going to be a launch pad to help us understand how 
all three of our separate services can, in our own capacities, start offering the sort of supports or the additional supports, if necessary, or the sort of, you know, sort of ad advocacy on issues that really matter to people in this time in their life. I think what's interesting there as well is the allyship, the importance of allyship. Like people were like, we're going to bring LGBT Ireland in and we're going to help them kind of be the forefront of what is needed. And I think that goes to show that like, we can't always get our, our foot in the door and we yeah. need the allies to kind of yeah. show up and be like, I'll get you in, you take it away and show us what yeah. to do. And that's privilege in action really, isn't it? Yeah. But it, it shouldn't be, it should be, well, not that it shouldn't be, it should be, but I look forward to the day when it's just normalized where that is how things work from the ground up. Completely. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Like is it, it, that, that allyship piece, I think that sometimes it can be scoffed at a bit because there is a lot of in, inauthentic allyship and pink washing that, that can go on, mm -hmm. but it is the most important piece of the, the movement towards full equality and equity for members of the community because we are a minority community. We cannot do this by ourselves. We aren't able to like create the change we need to create we, without members of the, the cis and heterosexual community like coming board and being allies with us, advocating for us. So, and I think the most important part of, of that allyship can often be recognizing your blind spots like it's not about kind of educating yourself to the point where you kind of think you know everything. It's about opening yourself up to the fact that this is a population or this is a group of people that I'm not going to know everything about. So I'm going to allow them speak for themselves, trust what they have to say and just follow their lead. And I think that can be scary for people who like to feel like they know everything. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. or like yeah. that they're not going to offend yeah. someone by saying yeah. the wrong thing or they're inviting like a queer group into their space and they're like but I know how this works and I know how this Absolutely. runs which is true but yeah you have to kind of have that side of going what am I missing to make it work for you yeah. completely and, and it's, it's exactly that like had had sort of this had something like this started up without the inclusion of, of, a, of, of a queer organization the legitimacy would, would not necessarily have been there. And you would have found that if people had gathered very quickly, they would have understood, oh, this isn't a space that actually understands me and allows me to have the conversations I need to have. And they would have, people wouldn't have been so open in the way they were speaking. Because that was, I mean, for, for me, the most beautiful thing of being part of it was the openness of the people who were there to share exactly what they needed to and then of the other people who are witnessing that to just be so open to allow to, I suppose, to, to just to celebrate everything that was being said and to, to really come at it from a, a place of kind of joy and allowing where there was sort of I suppose where there was grief or where there was mm -hmm. bereavement sort of people were able to come together to kind of honor that together and then also sort of where there was sort of like humor people were able to laugh together and I think there was such a sense of like everyone needed to feel safe in that space and like they were respected for who they were in order to get to a place where you could go in all of those different directions and not just kind of sort of feel a bit I suppose you know stiff and unsure <laughs> I suppose when you feel safe you experience everything that grief offers which isn't always just sadness and yeah, yeah. you know that side of things I'd love are you able to share any of the kind of conversations that may happen. So not specific conversations, but what people are bringing to the space, what their fears are or what they're opening up about in these spaces. Yeah. So I suppose in, in general, there were, there was a couple of themes that were coming through. And I suppose it, 
we were very lucky in that we managed to create a space that was sort of truly intergenerational and that there was like a, a very broad gender divide as well. So like we, we felt like the group was sort of reflective enough of the community as a whole, which is again, something that you don't really get in queer spaces often is you don't get a space that like is, is sort of able to cater to everyone. But we found that older members of the community were bringing in a lot of anxiety around their, I suppose, the, that they were approaching perhaps end of life, that death was something that was now a, re, a real part of their life and they were concerned about whether their identity would be respected in that, particularly as their, I suppose, as, as they, they will have come from a time when their religion may have been very important to them in their youth mm. or they may have been heavily influenced by sort of, you know, a, 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 religious, um, a religious upbringing. And so they see these sacraments or these sort of rituals as being something that's very important because it's part of what you need to do in order to sort of have peace and moving on. But you know that in order to do that, you have to sort of submit to the fact that the people who are sort of giving this this this, this, this ritual, the people who are per- performing these sort of celebrations in your end of life, will be looking at your identity as something that was intrinsically disordered. So it will not be celebrating. And people, particularly older, well, all queer people, I would say, but definitely older members of our community who've been out, who have come out, whether it's yesterday or whether it's a long time, the fight to get to the point where they came out was a huge battle and a huge and important battle for them. So having their identity respected right through to the end of their life and beyond is so important. And so I think that was something that came through with with older members of the community. There was also a sense of, sort of bereavement for lost opportunities and lost relationships. So there was a couple of people spoke uh, over both uh, death cafes around the fact that they would, you know, quite actively be uh, I suppose, checking RIP.ie, looking for names of people they wow. remembered having maybe cruised with, former yeah. lovers, friends from the, the 70s, the 80s, 90s, because it gave them a sense of closure, but also brought up a sort of a sadness for the fact that here is a person who could have been a friend, who could have been a person part of my life, had society at that time allowed me to do so. And there was, within younger people, sort of the a lot of the conversations were around sort of, I, I particularly around bereavement for parents where there were unresolved issues around their their identity so where parents had not responded well to their their coming out and now the the parents had passed on without them having the opportunity to to I suppose clear that up or to to sort of you know get whatever closure they needed and so they were bringing a lot of that in and they were I suppose the, the main kind of conversations that were happening there was also such a wide-ranging discussion on everything from sort of like a, a assisted dying through mm. to sort of what does a queer funeral look like? You know, kind mm-hmm. of what, what way do we want to celebrate? And, and that's another thing that came through that, that there was for older people in the room, particularly, there's a huge pride in the fact that they've been the first generation of queer people in our society to do literally everything. They were the first to be decriminalized. They were the first to stand up for their rights. They were the first to, 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 get, married, to get married, to have families, to, to sort of define what their life was going to look like without other people telling them what it was going to be. And now they were going to be the first to die with pride and they were going to be crossing that threshold ahead of us. So there was a huge pride in the fact that, they're, that this is part of what their legacy of a generation is going to be. They're going to set the tone for what it is to die as a member of the queer community. Oh my God, James, I actually have goosebumps. I'm literally like, I'm like, am I going to cry or am I going to tear? Like, so inspiring. Like you've articulated yeah. that in a way that I just, 
I couldn't have even anticipated. That's incredible to think that there are certain people who have experienced nearly it all. Yeah, I know. You know, the whole, they have a, their history is the queer history. That's standing on the shoulders of giants, really, isn't it? Literally. And those giants now need help and support. Ah, oh and my God, exactly yes. yes. They do, they do. And the, we, like I, I sort of said this, this earlier as well, that, that help and support needs to come in the, in the, it needs to come in the form of traditional health and social care support of like social setting or of, of sort of like, you know, wherever they go, they need to be included. But it also needs to start a conversation within the queer community about how we treat and understand the place of older people within our within our mm. within our spaces. Like it needs to this sort of youth focus is always going to push people further and further out. It's going to make them feel less and less valued. It's going to show them up that like they can give the whole life lived within our mm. community. They can be the people who are the trailblazers for where mm. we are now. But the second they're, you know, over the hill, they get pushed out to pasture and we don't want to see them anymore. So I think it's it's a lot about introspection within our community. And there's a lot of issues we need to have that conversation about. And then it is about educating the people in the sort of services that older people rely on about the fact that this is a population who need to be treated with respect and given sort of, I suppose, given the respect for the lives that they've lived and what they've lost out on potentially. And also like the amazing sort of creativity and color yes. and humor and sort of you know, these characters that that, that, that that have developed through all yeah. of that, the resilience. Rule breakers. Yeah. Rule breakers, exactly. Yeah. And you're right on, I mean, the way you're describing that is so beautiful for us with Dido Pride, because that's exactly where we're like, going you with it. on the floor. I'm like, oh my God. But that is it. And that's why, I mean, for Dido Pride, having, creating a space where it is literally creating a space for people from the queer community to, to look at a panel of celebrants who are all also members of the queer community. Yes. So that that choice is there. Because of course there's allies and all that. And I would count myself among those allies who are, so privileged to hold ceremonies for members of the queer yeah. community. Um, but at the same time, it shouldn't be that people have to look at a panel of cis, het, middle-class, white people and go, you can, that's, yeah. that's not it. Um, and it's about stepping back and creating space. And, and sometimes I can't even quite put words on why, on the essence of why it's so important that it is queer people holding funerals for queer people. Yes. But you've articulated so, so much there. <laughs> I suppose it's important because... They know that even if you're younger or if you've had a different experience, yeah. there's a part of you that understands coming yeah. to your identity, yeah. uh, learning to find your identity in a society. And I know obviously we've been luckier growing up uh, to other people, but there were still times of, you know, Completely. it's not, it's still not great yeah. today. No. There's and still there are fear several and layers. When it comes to a funeral as well, there are several layers, as you say, to that. I mean, there's the, the grief and death and sorrow and loss of a person, of a human being who has died. And then there's all the additional layers of, of grief and loss and, and disenfranchised grief and yeah. um, all of this, all of this, that, that it's not the place of a person outside of the community to actually try and imagine, imagine and think that they know what's going on here Completely. because you don't, you're not a part of no. the community. I mean, I would say, I have to step back there and say, I can't ever claim to have that lived experience, nor should anybody ever be positioning themselves like that. I, um, I, I like to, to refer to, to it as, as pearly gatekeeping, the way the yes. sort of the, the Catholic church, are, well, you know, I have my issues with, the, yeah. with that, but the, the way like some of these rituals have been taken and it's like, no, no, we're going to do it this way. Yeah. And your presence and who you wear is irrelevant within it. Like you mm. might get like five minutes towards the end. Like it's the same oh, within yeah. all of the sort of, you know, 
big celebrations that have that sort of religious aspect to it often it's like that the person at the center of it is moved out of the center of it yeah and And you know what that's and then they say the line will be that's because we accept everybody yeah and that's missing the point that's not acceptance no and and you've said it so beautifully as well earlier on that when when the organization that is holding that ceremony views this person as intrinsically disordered how can that be acceptance and the other killer is that um for say a, a queer person or a queer couple, you can stand on the, you you cannot stand on the altar of a traditional church generally and be married. Mm-hmm. No, but you can be up there when you're dead. Yeah. And how, how does that make sense? No, it, it doesn't. That to me is, you know, pick your space and stand there, <laughs> you know, because I think that's so deeply unfair that we will not accept you and your life milestones in life. But when you're dead, okay, we'll kind of gloss over a lot of it and give you the standard funeral that we give to everybody while actively not incorporating the truth of your life and your authentic experience. That's, that's, that's exactly it. And like for, for queer people, like, I mean, right across, like it has gotten better now, but there is still, like, it's still a very, like, it's, still, it's, a, it's a hard world to grow up as a member of the queer community. When you, when you assert your identity, when you come out, it becomes something that's really important to you. And so, like, for yeah. a long time, I think that people were kind of being pushed, particularly within the, within the queer community, were being pushed to kind of be like, oh, your identity doesn't really matter. Like, you know, you're, who you're attracted to. You're, you, were, you were being told to reduce it down to, like, I'm attracted to this person, you know, kind of, you know, I, that is what, that's what this is, and everything else makes me the same as the sort of mainstream Kind of population side, but actually it's so much deeper than that because you were connected into a whole culture and a whole history and you're linked into that and that needs to be part of these major moments within your life and it, and it often has like the seller like the moments in your life that you are going to remember the most that are going to be that are going to make the most lasting impact are likely going to be from within those queer spaces where you were the safest and you were more most able to be yourself and so to take those away and to sanitize them and to say we don't want to look at those we're going to yep. just sort of ignore that part of who this person was yeah. It's not good enough. And there's also so many people that are queer people of faith. So if yes. you remove yeah. the actual institutional faith paths, people still have their, their own innate faith in, in the God of their understanding or the, the, the faith path they were grown up with. I mean, in Ireland, very often, that's a Catholic faith of some sort and the pain of the ostracization that comes with that. Yes. But also the fact that people still have the call and the draw to be a part of that faith path. Yeah. And the pain then for a couple who are told they may, they may go to mass every week, they may practice their faith paths, they may say the prayers in, in the way, they may follow all of that. But when it comes to their marriage, they have to step outside of that faith path, have a marriage elsewhere, then go back to mass the following Sunday. And then for that couple, when one or other of them dies, they both go to church and they're allowed in the church together at that point. Yeah. It, it hurts me to yeah. go there with no, all of this, it, you know? Absolutely. Because it's like the, the most joyful union the most yeah. like beautiful part of your life is kind of pushed away about when love about, which is about love yeah. which transcends all of the other yeah stuff. and but then sort of they will you you can be grabbed back in when when you die and sort of you know like we can sort of gloss over the bits of you that we want to pretend and pretend we were inclusive and sort of you know you need to feel grateful for being allowed to to have this perhaps you know kind of to be able to be buried near family members or to sort yeah. of have that like end of life ritual that you've seen everyone else around you have and that you've always felt you needed so yeah it's very very like it's 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 awful double standard yeah and as an organization we don't mean to ever we don't want to amplify that what we do want to do is try and create the spaces where we can that can move alongside that where people yeah. if people do have a faith path and if they don't that we can create yeah. and celebrate these um milestones and rituals and, and ceremonies i suppose in the queer death cafes would it bring people comfort if let's say james you were to stand up and go there's actually an organization 
that have queer celebrants who can celebrate your life once you've passed on. Do you think that would actually absolutely. bring comfort to their no, life? A- absolutely, because I think that it was that ambiguity of like what services exist and where I can go to learn more that really came through loud and clear from people. There was a sense of, you know, I'm sort of in a vacuum of information that the sort of the only the only option available to me appears to be one I don't want to take and I don't know where else to go. And I think that, so part of the reason why we chose to, to um, part of the reason why we chose to, to do an event around, um, around older queer people, it, we landed on the death cafe, but it came out of our want to sort of start getting people thinking ahead and speaking more about, uh, about death and dying. And so the hospice foundation had published their new think ahead guide, which was, yeah. It's sort of like it's a practical guide to be able to sort of fill in all of the like really kind of administrative information that you don't want to have to be thinking yeah. about. Yeah. But it's also a sort of a, a a personal journal to be able to tell people kind of like this is how I want to be treated. And this is how I want to, you know, this is what's going to be important to me in like while I'm dying, after I've died. And so we wanted to get people thinking about that. And what came through is like, this is all very good and telling us that we should be thinking about this. But like, where can we go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that was part of what we need, now need to do. We're trying yeah. to put together a reference group to understand where are the queer inclusive services for like funeral directors, yeah. celebrants, that people can come to that they know that their identity is going to be truly celebrated and valued. Yeah. Oh my God, mm. this is like... <laughs> and do you know what is that? The other, be- the other beauty of the Death Cafe is... Um, it's a space for people to just explore some of these big existential Absolutely. philosophical questions. And Absolutely. human beings love to do that. Like yeah. we, just, to, just to explore these, these things that you may not have as time or a space or a person to, to, to yeah. discuss it with. No, because there was, there, was like, there, was, there was one person who arrived in and literally was just like, I love death cafes. I come to them all the time because <laughs> I love speaking just about death. And, mm. you know, she's like, oh, my friend saw this and was like, sent it over to me because like, you know, she's like, oh, you're mad about death, aren't you? And so like, <laughs> <laughs> but it is like, because I mean, it, 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 it is like, if you take away the fear and anxiety yeah. that people feel like yeah. kind of like somehow like speaking it, speaking it into existence, yeah. it, it is just like one of the things is like, you know, what does happen next? Where yeah. do yeah. we go? Yeah. Like what, what will it be like? All of those sort of things are there are conversations that you can have yeah. in a place where you don't feel like people are going to be looking at you. So I just like, yeah. I suppose they can be quite healing conversations, exactly. which yeah. I've found with when we've explored end of life, I've kind of left and been like, Ooh, there's a little yeah. less fear. And actually, there's a bit of healing that happened. Yeah, because it's also to have a space where, you know, you, we've been told various things that you're supposed to believe and this is what happens. Mm. And some part of us niggles going, I'm not sure I believe that. Yeah. And sometimes just having the space to actually extrapolate it a little bit can bring people to a whole Completely. reassurance yeah. of actually what I believe is okay. Might not be exactly what my family believes or what yeah. my friends believe, but there is that space. Um yeah, it's, it's yeah, it was, but it, it is like just as well, like the, the non judgmental nature, I think, is so important because it allows people that freedom to explore things that they wouldn't be feel free to say. Like, there was one man speaking about, um, and this is an individual I know well, so I can kind of share the story without, without too much uh, fear of, of him being frustrated. But he spoke about how, like, after his mother had passed away, he became convinced that she was like communicating with him through the kettle and sort of, you know, he like. He hadn't ever been able to speak to people about this before because yeah. like of this mm. sort of thing. But it was just and like obviously 
maybe she was. We don't know what. Yeah, yeah. But like, as far as, you know, he was able to come to peace with the fact that it was just like his way of kind of like bringing things, like of, of like working through issues or whatever. Yeah. But it was like a space he could walk into where he could say that. And instead of people like saying, oh my God, you're ridiculous and laughing yeah. at him, people were able to say like, oh, you know, yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah. I suppose yeah. start the conversation a bit and go, oh, well, who has been talking to me through <laughs> objects? <laughs> but there's also the whole thing as well as if you've had uh, a life where you have hidden a lot of your life and you've kept an awful lot of a covert and then a family member dies and you fear can they see me now can they see this like that can really inhibit people as well um no absolutely i think that there is a particularly where people have like lost parents who they didn't have kind of like positive relationships around their gender identity or sexuality there can be a real sense of shame or grief which it can come from both a sense of like you know you know this person can potentially be sort of you know viewing this now or just from a from a place of I never put this right with that person yeah, and yeah. I haven't had yeah. the opportunity and I never will again. So now I should try and live in the version of myself that they would have preferred in respect for them instead of saying kind of allowing yourself come to peace with who you are and just, you know, having the conversation with that person, even if they aren't there, you can still do that. You know, people, yeah. you can go to a person's gravestone. You can just even speak into the wind. You can go and mm. jump into the sea and have those conversations with the people who've, who've, who've passed on. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have done that yeah i'm interested in the person you were talking about who came and was like i love coming to these (laughs) and they maybe came with a real enthusiasm what is it like what's the energy of the space when you show up what are people like you talked about the themes but what are people bringing in their kind of feelings about it and how do those do you see them change throughout the conversations and the evening yes absolutely like it's such a it's an unusual sort of i think it, it it, it just by virtue of what it is, it is going to be a sort of an unusual energy and an unusual space initially. And so you will have kind of people who will walk in really sheepishly and will kind of like hang around the back and will kind of watch everything unfolding and try and get a, a feeling of what's going on. And you'll get these other people who will literally sprint in the door ready to just vomit up whatever <laughs> it is they have to say. Yeah. And so what you will kind of find is, I suppose, the... the we the way we've run them i suppose is that sort of we would bring everyone together we'd allow people a lot of time we have some posters on the wall with different questions simple things like you know what song would you like to have played at your funeral or sort of you know kind of you know what how would you like to spend your final days to get people into sort of a a headspace of thinking about this in a way that they're kind of doing it themselves we bring them together at myself and the other sort of two people who were there from the other organizations were kind of just set out some of the ground rules which is just that again no agenda there's no kind of you know we're not telling you what you can or can't discuss but just like we're here and if you get distressed you can you can go over there someone will be there to support you mm-hmm. and sort of you know we'll you know try and keep the conversation as relevant to everybody who's here um and so then what is you, it an open conversation or well, there's so this pockets is a, of so conversations I, I think that's we've ended up doing them just as like a full conversation within a whole group. Like we had initially planned for the first one that it was going to be at a number of smaller tables, but then everyone just started pulling up chairs and sitting together. And so it naturally just became kind of a round table chat and people liked the fact that they were all sort of there. And I think that there were people who had just come along to sort of sit and observe and be part of it in a way where they didn't want to feel pressured to participate. I think they liked that because it was a sort of a, a space they could like, vanish a little bit into and then there was other people I, th- I suppose it gave 
more directions for the conversations to go. But so then I think it would be nice to try and do it in a in a in a smaller table format where people had like more intimacy as well. But I suppose we've enjoyed doing it in that like broad bigger context. Everyone's speaking mm. together, we're all part of one group. I think that feels safer having the yeah. kind of big open group because if you're in the small pockets, there's some people who might feel a little bit nervous about going up to someone and being like, oh, can I sit here? Like, yeah. whereas if it's a big group, you just, everyone comes and just sits. That feels safer to me. And I think everyone felt for, like you kind of have these, these sort of events, like you have that first 15 minutes that sort of is a little bit like, you know, pulling teeth, mm-hmm. kind of your way to, but then I say like, we, we, we had allowed an hour and a half for them and ended up going for nearly three hours where like once you got into the conversation, it kept on going and new strands would come up. And then there were people who maybe wouldn't have said anything for the first hour and a half would finally be like, this is why I'm here. So it was like, it was just, I suppose, it was a space where you actually felt like everyone was getting what they were, what they had come for. Like everyone was mm. getting what they had come to the space for. They were taking out of it what they needed and wanted. And every person when they were leaving was like, let me know when the next one's on. I want to come to the next one. And so Mm -hmm. you really had a sense of this was something, these were conversations that were just being started. This wasn't kind of, you know, like you go along to like a a book club and that's it, Mm -hmm. that's over. That book is finished now. This was something that people were starting thinking about. And, you know, you did get people challenging as well. Like kind of, you know, you know, sometimes people were, were sometimes challenged by kind of like, how well they were feeling in that moment or how sort of they were how they how they ready or able they were to participate in the conversations it was a really it was a really life-affirming space to be in and challenging as well for myself kind of I suppose having like I've never experienced death in my life I've, I've never had anyone close to me pass on so I've never really had to to grapple with the realities of how I'll sort of you know sort of experience grief or, or, or loss and so being in that space it allowed me kind of feel a, a lot less afraid of us uh, which wow. I think is, is very powerful I think that's the fascinating thing when we spoke last week and you mentioned and you did mention it earlier the younger people who came who had yes. a like bereavement around their parents who had passed on or someone else in their life who had passed on that's when I was like oh this is much bigger than what I had seen in my head and I think that's why we wanted to bring you in mm. Because I think you would hear Queer Death Cafe, older people coming to talk about death and, you know, anticipating that arriving in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. But it's so much bigger than that. Completely. And I think that that, like, and that's the, that's the the message around this is it isn't just a space to speak about kind of your impending demise. Like it is something to, like people have questions from across their life around what death means to them, what grief means to them. They have issues that arise that they don't feel safe to speak about. So there was people who had, had lost uh, family members to, to to suicide and had never been able to sort of, I suppose hadn't found the way to speak about that and were looking for a venue like this to kind of actually articulate kind of some of what they were thinking about, like how their identity may have played into. You had people speaking about exactly having lost parents where they weren't maybe on the best of terms around their identity. And it's like, these aren't the sort of things, the sort of conversations that you can easily have in groups that don't understand how your identity works and who you, like, what, what, what having a queer identity means. Like, you need a space like that with people who all understand it to be able for it to be safe enough for people to bring up some of these like really vulnerable, um, really vulnerable uh, sort of uh, feelings. Mm-hmm. I suppose I actually don't know. This is a question for a question for you, Karen. Um, like we have the churches, the crematoriums. Mm-hmm. Can 
a funeral be performed in a space like City Sanctuary? Absolutely, yeah. That's why it's on the flat. <laughs> because like practicality is like getting a coffin in the door. Yeah. Because coffins are long by their nature, long and narrow, so maneuvering them is tricky if there's going to be corners yeah. and doors. But you can anybody can have a funeral in any space once that space is accepting of a coffin, which understandably some spaces might yeah. not want a coffin for various reasons. Yes. Um, but I mean, I've held funerals in JA halls, in hotels, um, in the funeral homes. In people's own home, you could have the funeral in the garden and then yeah. go to the crematorium. You know, there's a huge amount of flexibility in this. But that's why, again, having an organization like ours is a space for people to just, if you don't know what to do, they can pick up the phone and yeah. contact us and we'll help guide them. Because um, I'm very passionate as well about the wake, you know, the wake in the yeah. home and reclaiming that and, and, and not reclaiming it, but pr- protecting it because people are still doing it. But there's yeah. a kind of a story that it's disappearing. I think for queer funerals, what better place is there than, than the person's That's own home if it's absolutely. suitable, you know, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, where you don't necessarily have that traditional family structure, these spaces where communities can come together are so important. And I think that like a lot of particularly older people, their 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 social networks will be more fragmented. So you're mm. not necessarily going to have like a particular like group of friends who are all linked together through each other so you need that hub where people can come together yeah. to celebrate and remember yeah. the person and like i think definitely better to do it in it's sort of a, a wake where yeah. it, it is more centered in the joy and the sort of yeah. fun and the 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 laughter rather than sort of just having be kind of everyone arrives for whatever the i suppose the 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 funeral ceremony yeah, is the repose and, and the yeah, yeah and they don't get the opportunity to they don't to know really, what to wear and they yeah and they want to be mindful of the family and um and there's also what i find as well sometimes is the, the sometimes it can be a little bit jarring between a person's family and their chosen family yes and and that the the onus all the decision making will happen with the actual next of kin um family yes but the, the person clo- the people closest to that person maybe yeah. don't have the decision-making capacity and sometimes having a space where they can, maybe they might not have the physical presence of the person in the coffin or whatever they are. They might have the physical presence of the person, but they can have a celebration and a memorial um, service somewhere mm. else at a different time that, that is to help them process. Yeah. Because we need to physically process, or move your body, use your voice. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week, like the sweat, the tears, the primal nature of yeah. being together in the presence of death. Yeah. Um, it's really important that I think we help and facilitate people to reclaim that space and own that space and not feel like they need to be led by somebody completely. outside of their group. No, completely. And, and I think as well, like the, the way our society is structured, that there is a hierarchy that exists in terms of sort of, you know, blood relations have a place yeah. above all friends and others within a people's lives. That is not, frequently that's not the case within the queer community. And so what will happen is the people who actually would know how to and probably need to process the, the, the death of this person won't get the opportunity to do so, will be pushed to the fringes, will be made feel unwelcome or unwanted as part of the ceremony. So having those spaces to come together, to remember the people as they were, it's important for, I think, even for for, for a person approaching death to know that that their friends, that, that the life that they've lived, the part of the life that they have loved the most are going to be the bits that will sort of like infiltrate and be part of the, the final chapter of it. Yeah, yeah. And another big thing, because I'm just, I'm thinking of actual people whose funerals I've held. Another thing can be people, particularly maybe older generation, <clears throat> people who are in a relationship that they are not out in that relationship. Yes. Mm-hmm. They cohabit and they live together and they have done for many, many decades. And then it comes to the end and one of them dies and the family maybe, maybe have a sense that they're a couple, but not sure, and they don't want to tread on toes yeah. or the family have no idea or, you know, and that person then, who's left yeah. behind is so incredibly uh, left with a grief that 
that this is magic grief that is like the, there is in one of the, the episodes of invisible threads i was speaking to a man by the name of sean he had a, a, a partner for years who died in in a in a, a boating accident um i don't know why i laugh at that but he died mm. in a boating accident in the it, it, sort of when they had been together for a number of years and that that grief was not recognized by anyone he he mm-hmm. he had his family basically told him this is you know what happens to people like you you deserve this and it's like wow. he carried that grief with him for years unprocessed because yeah. he was bringing that sort of that sort of line of this is what people like me expect to experience yeah. like i oh i'm a God. deviant and don't deserve to have and people don't take queer relationships as seriously as yeah. heterosexual relationships even when, with with our sort of advances in marriage equality and uh, you know sort of with the the new level of sort of equality that exists in our society, I still think that that heterosexual relationships are seen as being more important than queer relationships. Yeah, the gold standard and everything exactly. else kind of falls somewhere That's along. It, yeah, sort of you know yeah. Because the other thing as well is say couples particularly, and you mentioned this earlier on, where somebody maybe realizing they're gay in the eighties, um, having a choice that either you get married and and live pretend heterosexual life or you leave and the people that maybe would have taken that choice of get gotten married but maybe will be having relationships outside of that marriage that are completely covert and and maybe having been going on for decades as well or it doesn't matter whether they're short term long term but these these relationships may exist and what happens like that's just all that energy is out there in the ether and it's unprocessed because that's completely invisible no, it, how do you process it yeah. when you can't say it out and loud? That's why you need queer friendly spaces, and even for every, for all. I mean, we say couples. Not every couple is two people. You know, there's all yeah. sorts of um, mm-hmm. dynamics of people in the world, and I think we do need to be. Well, we need organisations. That's why this organisation wants to be one that just is yeah. open to what may come, without judging it or trying to shove it in a box or do whatever. Yeah. Um, that life is life, and people are people, and people do what they Absolutely. do what they do in their yeah. lives, and. Once it's all consenting and once people yeah. are, you know, <laughs> once people aren't actually doing things that are hurtful to other yeah. people. No. That's, that's, no, that's all we I, care I, about I, in this I, organization, really. <laughs> yeah. I think like on what, what you were saying about that sort of, that those, those relationships and that energy that exists out there that may be unrecognized, like the, so LGBT Ireland, one of, I suppose, the, the, the sort of bedrock of what we offer is the National LGBT Helpline. Um, and we would get calls through to that, not like, very regularly but but we would get calls often from older people whose partner or who people they had been in relationships for 10 15 20 30 years sometimes had passed away and no one else knew and the volunteer they're speaking to on the end of the phone is the only person that will ever know about the end of that relationship Mm -hmm. and it it is just so tragic that people don't feel like for as far as we've come that there are still people out there exactly like that who either are within heterosexual marriages and have never been able to sort of, you know, I never been able to come out or never felt, mm-hmm. you know, able to, to come out or, or feel now that they are trapped or duty bound to a relationship that they got into at a time in the past or who just are afraid that the people around them will judge them and they don't feel like they can acknowledge who they are. And then yeah. you, you hear these stories of people phoning in who no one knows that they're gay. They've been in this a, a relationship, a really powerful, beautiful relationship with a person for decades, and that person has passed away, and now they have to pretend as if nothing has happened. And it just yeah. is tragic. And if you're a trans person, what do you wear in your coffin? Yes. Who decides what you're going to wear? You know, exactly. uh, I mean, don't be trans, but anybody that has any gender decisions or whatever like the, the, the normativity of well this person is in this body so this Absolutely. is the clothes that we're going to put on them for their for their yeah. funeral or for their, 
these are big questions, you know. Mm. Um, no, absolutely. Because I, I was thinking, like, so if you have, say, if you have a, like a trans mass person, may want their may want their their chest bound yeah. when they're when they're dying, or sort of, you know, you, and it is about like having queer sort of funeral homes and directors yeah. who are then able to say, right, well, let's get to know what this person's identity was. And also it is about filling in your 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 thinking ahead yes. booklet so, mm. that, so people that your can family actually go know. and look yeah. and say, this is what I want. Because your family might, that might yeah. be the issue is, is family support. But um, we actually, because I did a funeral for a man and it was funny because it was a big thing about what was he going to wear in his coffin because he had two, so one was a very formal, loved to be very formal. It, yeah. it, this is a nice version of it, like very, very formal. And the other was complete Hawaii shirt yeah. and <laughs> floral shirt and whatever. And they couldn't decide because they were like, this is... It's both him. And, and yeah, it's both him, but also he probably had a strong... Well, actually, when I finish this story, actually, he probably would have a strong sense of it. So I came in to do his funeral. His partner was saying this and um, it turned out I'd forgotten this until I started the story, but it turned out I had met this man a year previously at another funeral that I'd held for his friend. And it was a summer's day. We were out in a, yeah. in a garden. They were all having drinks and tea and whatever. And um, I admired it. He was wearing a shirt and I admired his shirt. And he said, it's great. It's so comfy. I'll be buried in it. Ha ha yeah. ha. But I was able to say to his family then, well, I can help you because he did <laughs> say to me when I met him once, I only ever met him once in pure chance. That's incredible. And what he said was, it's so yeah. comfy. I'll be buried in it. Um, but it, rum, it just brought to mind to me just how important that decision is because that's something that could torment a person then. Yeah. They, did I make the wrong decision for my person or no, completely. Uh, no, absolutely. And, and knowing as well, like, you know, if you, if you are someone who's, who's gender nonconforming, like it, it's about the, the battles that you have fought throughout your life yes. to be recognized for who you are. And yeah. if you are someone who is like gender nonconforming, like feeling like, and, and you're sort of coming towards the end of life, that additional anxiety of, am I going to be stuffed into a dress or a suit yeah. that doesn't feel like me and buried as a person I'm not and remembered yeah. as a person I'm not? Like, I think that, you know, it, it, it's that additional stress that you just don't need. Like, you don't yeah. need that yeah. stress. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. James, that's, I have like so many other little questions to dive in. Let me ask you one more. Um, where, what's your hope for the futures of the Queer Death Cafe? Where would you like to see them go maybe in the next five years? I mean, I would, I would love to, I think that we're getting a, a reference group off the ground between ourselves and the three organizations and we're inviting sort of other people to be, to be part of, of that, yourselves included. And I would love to see sort of a, 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 a resource for queer people that exists where they can go and find people who'll be able to help them celebrate their end of life in a way that like most reflects authentically who they are and helps to challenge some of the stigma around those conversations. I would love to see us prompting more conversations within the queer people or within the queer community about the place of older people within our community yes. more generally. And then also just making sure that whatever end of life services exist are authentically and really and actually queer inclusive. That would mm -hmm. be, that would be my ideal. And also sort of a self-sustaining kind of network of, of queer people who are leading queer death cafes wherever they are in the country for people who want to come along yeah. and access them. It's kind of, it's been so amazing to sit and listen to you talk because I've gotten to sit over there listening to you chat in so many different types of episodes. <laughs> and I listened to Sissy That Pod, which was the podcast yeah. you used to be on. But like to see the passion and the drive you have for this area is, it's incredible. It's, and you, your wisdom and it's just, it's like flying through and it's such an honor to kind of sit and listen to you chat about it. I have, a, I have a quick question and I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. So this is an optional answer. No, go for it. We talked about it last <laughs> week. Do you have a sense of what age you'd like to be when you die? Oh, yes. Oh, 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, me and my partner Diego joke about how we'll both die at 100 on the same day at the same time. Oh, <laughs> oh I love that. Um, but I don't know. Like, I feel like my my attitude towards is it that towards it is that I I as, when I'm no longer able to live my life in a way that I feel sort of like I have autonomy and, and sort of yeah. personal capacity, yeah. then I'm happy enough to, yeah. to check out. I think that's it. We're both 104. Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough, we discovered by accident. We discovered week. that on the mic last week. 104. James, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been thank you so much. Wonderful. It's been incredible.